But tonight, I get the opportunity to share with you all, and we're going to be talking about a very, very specific word that gets tossed around an awful lot within the body of Christ. And it's something that, honestly, I, I truly believe most of us don't fully grasp or fully understand, and that word is sin. So we're going to start here in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. We'll go ahead and read through it. We'll pray, and then we'll begin to talk about a few things. So Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you this evening. We just desire to, to be completely centered and focused upon you. Lord, that whatever it is that you desire to speak to our hearts tonight, whatever challenges you have for us, Whatever insight that you desire to give us into your character through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that that would take place. We pray that not a single one of us would leave this place without having drawn closer to you, without, have not, without having known you deeper and more intimately than ever before. We continue to pray for the law enforcement body here in El Paso. We pray, Father, that you would continue to, to comfort, to bring peace Lord, that you would give words to speak to those who are near the family. And Lord, we pray that you would set a hedge of protection around the law enforcement. Lord, they do such a tremendous job and it's such a necessary job. And we pray, Lord, for their families. We pray for those that, that serve in law enforcement, those that serve in the military. Lord, we pray for the first responders. We pray that you would just have a hedge of protection around them in the midst of this terrible, terrible, decaying world. Father, we just commit this time unto you, and we ask and pray all of this. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and everyone said, amen. So there was a lot of, a lot of things that we read there. Romans is just chock full of so much doctrine and so many passages that, that you can just sit there and you can use what, what Pastor Charlie often says, you can glean, you can pull so much out of such a small section. And that's a, a fairly large section. But the reason that we read such a large passage is to give us a good perspective, a good understanding of, of what we're talking about here when we talk about sin. And there are words in the Bible that, that get tossed around, as I shared before. And there are words that, honestly, most of the time when I was reading before, they would just kind of get interchanged in my head. Like I looked at them and I saw that they were different words, but so often they just seemed to mean the same thing in my own thinking, in my own thought process. And three of those words are sin, iniquity, and transgression. 
a lot of times you'll see those words and, and we kind of use them interchangeably sometimes. Even when we're discussing things of the Bible, things of God, we start to use those things and make them all mean the same thing. But when you really dig down deep, they are actually three very distinct things, three very different parts of falling short. The first one, sin, in, in the Hebrew is a word called kata, and in Greek, hamartia, and that means to fail or to miss the goal, to miss the mark, most often referred to as a moral failure. It's to miss, to fall short of, to, to have this mark that was set, this benchmark, this goal, this standard that's been set, and to fail to reach it, to miss the mark. And that is moral failure. It's sin, kata, hamartia. Iniquity is another word, word called avon or anomia in the Greek, and that refers to crooked behavior. And so it's kind of a play on words, but what it really means is that there is a right way to do things and then to have it twisted, to make it crooked, that that is iniquity. To do something that is outside of the way that it should be properly done. To know how to do something and to intentionally make it crooked, to make it not straight. And then the third word is transgression, or pesha, or paraptuma. And that's to violate trust. So most often that's used in, a, in the context of a relationship. So you trust those that are, are your friends. You trust those that, that you're married to. You trust your children. You trust your parents. There are all of these different relationships that you have trust. And when they fail to hold up their end of that relationship, it violates that trust. And that is actually what transgression means. And a lot of other ways that you can use that word, including treaties and, and things of that nature. But, but it really comes down to violating trust. And so when you start to see the difference in each one of these words, the depth of the words gives us a greater understanding of so many different passages of Scripture as you go through the Bible. Because it, the, these words can't just be interchanged. You can't just use one to mean another. They are very, very specific, very distinct words. And so tonight we're really just going to focus on one primarily, and that is sin. And the, the Hebrew word is kata. And so if you can turn the lights out... Most people ahead. assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are. And that... If you can go ahead and hit the lights and then hit the video. Uh, we're going to watch a... It's a, a fairly short video. It's about four and a half, five minutes. And, and it just gives us a, a real brief introduction to this word kata and what sin really is. That's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate. Because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin, this is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hair and not kata. That is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to kata your way. 
miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so, sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it, or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, Chata is crouching at the door, it wants you. But you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others, and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin.
And so I know that the, the graphics are a little bit cheesy, but I thought that when the first time that I saw that video, it just made so many things so much clearer for me. And, and that's a great site if you want to be able to go look at some different word studies, some, a lot of cool biblical stuff. It's www.thebibleproject.com. They have a lot of great things. Kids would love to watch them too. And, and so it's just a, a great tool for you to be able to continue to learn and to grow. But it gives us a really, really good basic understanding of this word, kata, of what sin really is. And when you really get to understand that, it changes so many passages of scripture. If you were looking at them from a different perspective, if you were looking for uh, that word, that specific word sin, as something else. And many times, me personally, I would look at it more as iniquity. It was something that, that you knew what was right and you intentionally made it crooked. You did the opposite. Or that you transgressed, that you, you violated that trust, you violated that relationship with God. And it, it has some, some bearing on that. But to sin, to, to sin, to kata, hamartia, what that really means is to miss the mark. To understand that that's what God is saying through all of these different writers when he talks about sin. It's that there has been this standard that was set up for us and that we continue to fail. We continue to miss that mark. We don't stay within the boundaries that God has laid out for us and we fall short of doing what he has called us to do. It's not just a, a a right or wrong, it's not doing what God has set for us. And so when you start going through that, passages like Romans chapter 3 and Psalm 51 and, and some of the other passages that we're going to go through tonight start to make such a big difference. Going back to Romans chapter 3, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. It's something that we've talked about before, that the law has been given, the Ten Commandments, but even beyond that, just the whole, the entirety of the word of God has been laid out for us to give us this road map, to give us this instruction manual so that we know how to live this life. And it covers all sorts of different areas and aspects of life. So many times people come in and they say, well, what does the Bible have to say about this? Because I, I, I don't think it says anything. And, and you're able to say, no, this is actually what the Bible says about that. That the Bible talks about so much more than we often realize. But that we've been given all of this so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God so that there is no way that anybody could stand before God and say, I have met every standard that you have set before me. That I have met the mark in every way, in every capacity. In verse 20, it says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight because we can't do it. We can't hold up to it. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Again, if you understand what sin means, that means to miss the mark. Well, we need to have the mark set for us so that we can know whether or not we're meeting that mark, meeting that expectation, meeting those goals. And so that's what the law is. The law gives us that mark so that now we have a knowledge of what it means to fall short of. But now the righteousness of God in verse 21, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So we've been given this righteousness of God, this access into the, the relationship that we have with the Father through the Son. 
that now it's his righteousness. It's his righteousness that covers our shortcomings, our failures. And then he says, even the righteousness of God in verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference between the Jew or the Greek. There's no difference between one man or one woman and another, for all have sinned. All have sinned, and that means to fall short of the glory of God. That means to fall short of what God has desired from the very beginning of creation. You know, as the video shared with us, and as you go back to the book of Genesis, you see that we were created in the image of God, that we were created for a purpose, and that is to worship God, to be able to live as God has called us. In the New Testament, Paul writes that we would be holy, that we would be set apart, sanctified, that we would meet the mark as the one who has called us is holy. And so we, we've been given all of these things. We know that we fall short, but now we've been brought into this relationship. Now we stand in this grace. And he says in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That means that, that we can now be redeemed, that there is a way for us to make this right. And that that is through Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, as a payment by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, the righteousness of God, because in his forbearance, it means that, that because he waited patiently upon us, even while we were at war with God, that still he loves us so much and loved us even before we knew him, even before we loved him, that he still, in his forbearance, he had passed over the sins the failures, the shortcomings that were previously committed to demonstrate now at the present time his righteousness. Not our righteousness, not that we have now attained, not that we have now achieved it, but it's the righteousness of God that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And something that, that I, I've shared before that I, I learned at a, a worship conference several years back is that one of the, the attributes of God that we don't often talk about but that is so important of who he is is his judgment, his righteous judgment. That means that it is a perfect judgment. And people want to say, well, how can you say that? How can you like the fact that God wants to judge, that God is going to condemn people? That that, how can that be such a good thing? And yet when you stop and think about the reality, that's so important. Because could you really be righteous? Could you really be good if you allowed everything bad to go completely unpunished and unchallenged? Well, obviously, we, we would hate that. I mean, even a, as a parent, my children all the time, well, how come so-and-so gets to do that and I don't, right? I mean, we, we are all like that. And we never grow out of that. That's not something that only happens with kids. We look at each other and we say, well, God, how come you're letting so-and-so do that and not me? But that's the attitude that we have. But we look at it and we look for what? We look for justice. We look for fairness. We look for equality. That's something that we desire. That's something that we see as long as it is going to benefit us. But it's so absolutely necessary. And so it's this righteousness, this righteous judgment. So when he says that he might be just, that God might be just, that he might be fair and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What he's saying is there had to be someone or some way to pay the price for all of our failures. 
There had to be something because otherwise God could not be just. God could not be righteous. God could not be holy. God could not be who he is, the one true almighty living God, if there was no recompense, if there was no payment, if there was no propitiation for all of these shortcomings. And so now that gives us a a very, very different picture because now it's not just about all the evil, terrible things that we do, but that we have been saved from sin and the wages of sin is death. And what is sin? Sin is not just all those terrible, awful, evil, manipulative things that we do. Sin is actually just falling short of the perfection and the holiness and the righteousness of God. And that makes everything so different. Because when people say, oh, well, I'm not a sinner. Well, no, you are. Unless you're absolutely perfect, you are a sinner. Unless you have achieved that status where you think, act, and do everything as God does, you are still a sinner. We are all still sinners. We're sinners that have been saved by grace. And, you know, we're made holy continuously. Continuously made holy, continuously set apart to be sanctified, to be pulled out of all of this unholiness, unrighteousness, all of this evil, and all of our failures. That we are being pulled out of those things into the perfection and the righteousness and the justice of God. And so going back to to a a passage that that I have read over and over so many times and, and that God has ministered to me so much through, going back to Psalm 51, we start to see, even in the Old Testament, some of the ways that the biblical writers use this word and what a difference it makes. In Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4, it says to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so this is a psalm that he's writing after he has been confronted with his moral failure. You know, a real, real brief understanding is that he was the king. He was supposed to go out to war. It was the time when kings went out to battle, and he decided that he wasn't going to go. And so when he stayed behind, the army went out, he stayed behind, and one of his soldiers had a wife who was very beautiful, and she was taking a shower on top of her house. That's where the showers were. But from his palace, he could see her. And so he saw her bathing, and instead of looking away, instead of going to back into the palace, he stared and he lusted after her. So then he called her to the palace. He slept with her. They had a child together. And then he conspired to have her husband killed in the line of battle. And then after he was killed, then he brought her to live with him in the palace, making it seem as if he had been such a, a nice guy to take in this widow from battle and to make her one of his wives. And so he thought he had gotten away with all of this stuff, and then Nathan the prophet is sent by God to tell him, you messed up, and I know you messed up. You know you messed up, and now other people know you messed up too. And so he's been confronted with this failure, and so this is the psalm or the song that David begins to write after he's confronted with this failure. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. One of the words that, again, just oftentimes we would use interchangeably. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. 
and cleanse me from my sin. And in the first several times that I read through this passage, those three words pop up right there in two verses. And to me, they all just kind of ran together. They all kind of meant the same thing. But he says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin, my failure, my shortcoming is always before me. And then he says something that is so, so important for us when we fail and when we are having this, this time of confession with our God. He says, against you in verse 4, you only have I sinned. Against you I have fallen short, against the standard that you have set. Not that we're comparing ourselves to other people, but we're comparing ourselves to God and to the righteousness that he has set forth. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And so he's gone through and he's said all of these things that he's done, but he started by saying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, cover all of these things. Forgive me for all of these things. Absolve me of my guilt. For all of these things. I am confessing before you that, that I have messed up. And, and he's used all three of the words that, that we talked about to begin tonight. He's used the, that he has violated the trust. That he has behaved crookedly. And that he's fallen short of the mark. He's done it all in this one thing. This one act. This one action. And so that's, that helps us see that, that it's not like each one of these three words are completely separate unto themselves. A lot of times when we commit one, we're actually committing two and oftentimes all three. But what he's talking about here when he says against you and you only have I sinned. Against you and you only have I fallen short. Not, not compared to other people, because he's still, as God himself said, he's still a man after God's own heart. It doesn't mean that he's perfect. It doesn't mean that he was without blame. It doesn't mean, obviously, that he was without sin or iniquity or transgression. What it means is that he desired to draw close to God. He desired so much to be close to God and to do things as God desired for them to be done. And so when he says against you and you only have I sinned, he's acknowledging before God the most important relationship that we have in this life. He's acknowledging his failure in that relationship. That he failed to live up to his end of the bargain. That he failed to do what God had commanded him to do. David was confessing before God about all three types of failures, but this one specifically, he said, against you and you only have I done this. Against you and you only have I sinned. And obviously he, he failed miserably and he did so many things in this to so many different people. But the most important failure that he had was that he failed to live up to the responsibility of what God had given to him. So yes, he had transgressed, he violated the trust that had been bestowed upon him as a king, as a man, and as a servant of God. He had certainly committed iniquity. He had crooked behavior, things that should not be done by someone that desires to live rightly. Someone that is a man after God's own heart. But most importantly, he had fallen short of what God and the people had expected of him. He had fallen short of the benchmark, the bare minimum that had been set for him. And that's really what it comes down to. It's the bare minimum. Sometimes we get stuck into this mentality that as long as we're getting close to it, then we're doing good. 
But the reality is we're not doing good. We may be doing better than we were before. We may be doing better than somebody else, but that doesn't equate to being good. That's when, when we look at a passage in the New Testament and Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. He, that's what he's saying is that there is only one that is good, that is always doing the right thing, and that is God. That Jesus came down to live on the earth as a man, but he still maintained that goodness. That he was still good in everything that he did. That he met that mark, and that mark is the minimum expectation for us. You know, and it, it makes it challenging, obviously, because the minimum and the maximum are exactly the same. Like, you can't get any better than being perfect, right? And yet, perfection is what's expected. That's the bare minimum. So that means that if you meet it, then you're perfect. We obviously know that that doesn't happen for us. But that is what has been set before us. David's failures falling short, his kata are always before him, and his failure is against God, whether anyone else had been harmed or not. And he goes on in verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities." So he continues on in this, this plea before God. He says, I know that I messed up. And believe me, I am reminded of that constantly, that my sin, my failure, my shortcoming is always before me. And there are many times in our lives that that's what it is. There are things that we have fallen short of and they continue to stare us in the face, right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, but how many of you can relate to that where there has, there's something that has caused consequences, negative consequences in your life that you still see day after day after day. That you still see the, the reward, if you will, the punishment for that failure, for that shortcoming. And we see it and it's constantly before us. And sometimes the enemy begins to use those failures, those shortcomings that are constantly before us, even though we've turned from them, even though we've sought forgiveness, even though we've repented, even we've turned our backs on those things, the consequences are still before us. And sometimes because of the sin, the consequence is still before us. The enemy seeks to use those things to discourage us from drawing closer to God. That's when we start to hear the condemnation instead of the conviction. The conviction being the right thing, the, the thing that God actually does to us, where he says, you messed up, let's make this right. But the enemy begins to use those things as condemnation, which is, you messed up, you can't make this right, and you are forever irredeemable. And so David is in that place where he says, my sin is constantly before me. I am constantly reminded of this failure, and please change me do something behold in verse 6 you desire truth in the inward parts he had lied he had broken violated trust he had lied and he, he says you desire truth not just in in the outward things but even in the inward parts you desire truth you desire for me to be honest with myself about my failures about my shortcomings about my transgressions and my iniquities you also desire it in the inward parts in my relationship with you. That You desire truth and honesty. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. 
But then he says in verse 7, purge me, cleanse me, remove all of this with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I will be pure again. I will be perfected without blemish. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Sometimes the consequence is, is a punishment. It's something, it's a discipline. It's a chastisement as it's put in the New Testament. It's a chastisement, a discipline from God. And sometimes it is painful that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. And this is written from, from the perspective of a shepherd. That's who David was before he became a king. And if you know anything about being a shepherd, which I know very little, but I've read a lot about, but if you start to get to the heart of being a shepherd, one of the things that happens is they find out that sheep are very, very dumb animals. And sometimes one of the only ways to make them learn not to, to leave the flock and not to leave the shepherd is that they have to break their legs. And so he says here that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. That's what that picture is, is that these are our bones, that these are our consequences, these are chastisements, discipline, because you love me, because you know that I messed up, but you don't want to leave me in my failure. You want to draw me closer to you. And so he says that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And he continues on in verse 10 and he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So he says to create in me a clean heart, O God, to, to recreate in essence. That we have this clean heart, that we've been purged, we've been cleansed, we've been washed whiter than snow. And then we fail again. And we need to be re-cleaned. We need to have this clean heart recreated. And that's what he's saying here. Recreate in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. A steadfast spirit, something that, that would be immovable, as we're going to see Paul write in the New Testament as we, we get towards the end later on tonight. But he says to renew a steadfast spirit in, within me. That I would not be moved to the right or the left. That I would see the mark. That I would press towards that mark. That I would meet that expectation. Renew that steadfast spirit within me. And then in verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Because that's what the enemy comes in and wants to tell us. The enemy comes in and he wants to say that we have been cast out of the presence of God because of our shortcomings, because of our failures, because of our iniquities, because of our transgressions, because of our sins. That we've been cast out from the presence of God and that he's removed his Holy Spirit from us. But that is not God's desire for his children. If you tonight here are a child of God, if you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, that is not God's desire. God's desire is actually to draw us closer into his presence when we fail. To be able to remind us by his Holy Spirit of what we should be doing. And then to restore, as he says in verse 12, to restore unto us the joy of his salvation. Not of our salvation, not because we saved something, not because we did something right, but because God has now restored and redeemed us once again. He's cleaned us once again, and he's renewing a steadfast spirit within us. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Not just by your spirit, not just by your powerful spirit, not just by your gracious spirit, all these other things, but by your generous spirit. 
And the understanding there, the word picture that he's giving us here is your generous spirit is that even though I continue to blow it royally so often, that your spirit, that your spirit still desires to uphold me. Even though I, I am so frail and so faulty and so prone to temptation, that your spirit, your generous spirit would uphold me. And then when, when all of this has taken place, when I have been restored, then in verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Other people that have missed the mark, other people that, that as the video was sharing with us, sometimes don't even know that they're missing the mark, that they would be converted to you that they would learn of the mark that's been set, that they would learn of Jesus Christ, of the life that he lived here on the earth and the life that he has now offered to us. Psalm 119 is a, a very, very long psalm, and we're not going to read through the whole thing tonight. We're just going to do the first 16 verses. But the first 16 verses start to give us this understanding of what it means to be converted to God, of what it means to walk with God. In Psalm 119, beginning in verse 1, it says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. So you're undefiled in the way. That means that you're meeting the mark. You're meeting the expectations. You're walking in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. So the first verse there, the first two verses, is really talking about sin, about falling short. Then he says, they also, on top of not falling short, they also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently, to be able to, to look at the word of God and the things that God is speaking to us through his word and to keep those things diligently, not just half-heartedly, not just some of the time, but all the time, that we are consciously looking at our lives, inspecting our lives and saying, how is this right or wrong? How is this meeting the mark or missing the mark in relation to what God has set out for me? Verse 5, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes, oh, do not forsake me utterly. And so all of these things, even though the word sin doesn't pop up, that's really what he's talking about. To keep your statutes, to keep the statutes of God, to diligently keep the precepts of God, to follow the law of the Lord, that's what it means to not sin. That's the opposite of sin. The opposite of sin for so long I believed to be evil. You know, well, that sin was evil and the opposite of sin was good. But the opposite of sin is not good. The opposite of sin is meeting the mark, meeting the expectation of following your precepts, your statutes, your commandments, of walking as Jesus walked, meeting that mark. But he continues on in verse 9 of Psalm 119. He says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. And that is a question that, that we should all have. How can a young man, how can an old man, a young woman, an old woman, how can we cleanse our ways? By taking heed according to your word by listening to your word, by following your word, by abiding in your word. With my whole heart, verse 10, I have sought you. 
Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you, that I might not fail against you, that I might live up to the standard, the expectations, the things that you have set before me, that I might live up to those things. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. I will think about your precepts. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. Think deeply about what you would do. You know, several years ago, the WWJD bracelets, bracelets were all the craze. You know, what would Jesus do? Everything was, well, what would Jesus do? And then it got overplayed, and then they disappeared. But in reality, that is what it means to not sin, is to contemplate the ways of God and say, what would Jesus do? And if I do what Jesus would do in this situation, then I have kept myself from sinning, then I have met the mark. Because that's the mark, that's the expectation. I will contemplate your ways. And then in verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I will not forget your word. And something that I've talked about before, in order to not forget something, that means you have to know it first. That means we need to be getting into the word of God. We need to study it. We need to learn about it. We need to spend time, yes, obviously in, in, in Bible studies and church sermons, but also just on our own, spending time in the word of God. That we would get to know it, that we would learn it, and that we would not forget it. But the New Testament, it, it talks about very, very similar things. So flipping over to Romans chapter 7, in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes something that, that I think most of us are familiar with. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. We know that the law is spiritual, that it was given to us because this is what God's expectations are. So the law is spiritual. It's a good thing. But I am carnal. I am not spiritual. I am fleshly, and I am sold under sin. That means that, that I, I carry the weight of sin, that I carry the weight of my failures, that, that I have this bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So God has given us this benchmark, this set of rules, this set of laws to live by, and it's only possible by walking in the Spirit. And he says that the law is spiritual, and we are not, that we are carnal, so that means the only way we can do this is through God. But he says, for what I'm doing, I don't understand. I, I don't understand why I continue to miss the mark. I know better. Again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you can sympathize with that? I, I know I can. I know what I should do. I know what the expectations are. I know what God has called me to do, and still I don't do it. I, and, and I don't understand why I know what to do, and I know what not to do, but all the things that I know God doesn't want for me, I still seem to want to chase after them. I know better. But what I will to do, that I don't practice. All the good things, all the things that God has laid out for me, these expectations, I want to do them, but I don't practice them. And then all these things that I hate, that I, I hate failing. I, like that's what it comes down to. And, and this passage makes so much more sense to me when you understand that sin is failing to meet the mark. Because we hate failing, right? 
I mean, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I just want to be a failure today. Like, that's not the attitude. Like, that is, at least not consciously, that's not what we want to be. We don't want to fail. I can't stand failing or falling short or doing something below par, below average. It's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable. And most of the time, it's costly. So we hate to fail. We hate sinning because that's what it is. It's failing. We hate failing, but we find ourselves doing it way more often sometimes than than doing the right thing and meeting the mark, meeting the expectations. We know what is right and we still fall short. And he continues on with this thought in verse 18. He says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. That apart from God, apart from the spiritual side of me, that in my flesh, there is absolutely nothing good about me. It is not that I can say, well, I would be a good person even if I didn't know Jesus. Or I would be a good person. No, there isn't. There is not a single good person in the world. Sometimes we even mistakenly use that phrase. We say, well, they're not, they're not a Christian, but they're a good person. Well, no, they're not. Even Christians aren't good people. There are no good people, just God. There are no good people, just God. But he, he says here that, that we... We do it. We do it. I know that in me, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will, to do the right thing, is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I I can't figure it out. That I know, I know what to do. But for some reason, it just doesn't translate into my actions. It doesn't translate into doing the good thing. For the good that I will to do in 19, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. That I practice. And so so this is getting back to that crooked behavior. He's now not just talking about missing the mark. Now he's talking about the crooked behavior, about the things that are evil. The evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but but sin that dwells in me. We very easily find ourselves relating to Paul. We know what's right. We have the ability to do what's right, and we still do what's wrong. We're frail. We're faulty creatures, and we need to be continually renewed to be drawn back into a right way of living, to be given that steadfast spirit. Renew within me a steadfast spirit. Recreate in me this clean heart. But he continues in verse 21. He says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. So I find in this law or this, this standard or this, this thing that always happens, this is what always seems to happen, is that evil is present with me, with me, the one who wills to do good, that evil is constantly present with me. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, the inward man being spiritual, that, that I delight in doing the things that God wants me to do, but I see a different law, another law in my members, in my flesh, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. That means that, that again, it's this constant battle between the spiritual and the fleshly, between doing what God has set out for us and missing the mark. That's the, the battle. It's not just between good and evil, but it's between doing the very best to be perfect or to not be. And the, the challenge here, the, the great thing that we get to see here, is that to be perfect is actually attainable in short spurts, but it's attainable. To be perfect, to meet the mark, to do what we ought to do, 
it's attainable. But we are brought into captivity, we're brought into bondage, we're prisoners of doing the wrong thing, of falling short. O wretched man that I am, verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? That means that there's nothing good in me. Who is going to rid me of all of this just frailty, of all of this falling short, of all this failure, of all this stupidity? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And that's what it comes down to a lot of times is that, that we want to do the right thing. We think about doing the right thing. That the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That we want to live up to that mark. We want to meet those expectations that God has set before us. And we just fall short. But the beautiful thing is that there has been a recompense. There's been a payment, a propitiation for our failures, for our falling short. That even though we delight in the law of God and still blow it, that there is deliverance and that that deliverance is through Jesus. If we allow ourselves to be overwhelmed with the flesh, though, then we fail miserably every time. So we are called to have that steadfast spirit, that clean heart, to be immovable. As 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 53 through 58 shares with us, for this corruptible, this, this evil, this easily drawn aside body must put on incorruption and this mortal this flesh must put on immortality to be perfect to be able to live forever so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your sting O hades where is your victory the sting of death is sin I mean, that's, that changes that passage when you understand what it means. The sting of death is failure. Failure to meet the mark of what God has set for us. That's the sting of death. And the strength of sin is the law. It means the power of sin, of falling short, falling short is found in the law. Because without the law, we wouldn't have a mark to meet. And then if there's no mark to meet, then everybody's fine. Everybody's okay. But there is a mark, and so the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, in verse 57, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we find this victory, this victory and this ability, this opportunity to be able to be perfect. Therefore, my beloved brethren, what does he say? Be steadfast, just like David wrote. Create in me a clean heart and renew within me a steadfast spirit. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We are completely corruptible. We were before we met Jesus and we still are after we met him. We are still completely open to being corrupted at any moment of any day. Like there is not a single sin, a single shortcoming, a single transgression, a, a violation of trust, a single iniquity, crooked behavior that we are not capable of any moment of any given day. We are capable of every single one of them. And that didn't change when we became Christians. But now we have the ability to take victory over all of those urges, all of those desires, and to be able to be perfect. 
But it's only through the gift and the power of God that we're able to avoid the corruption, to avoid falling short of the life that God expects of us. We have victory over sin and death through Jesus, and we are able to victoriously, continually overcome the power of sin, to be constantly immovable, and to consistently be doing the work of the Lord because we are walking in the example of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, there so many times we talk about what it means to walk in the Spirit, and, and we're not going to go through all of them tonight, but, but in Galatians, when he talks about walking in the Spirit, there, there are so many simple things. So we'll, we'll go ahead and read through this passage. It's not in my notes, so they may not have it up there, but it's Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. We'll just read through the, the walking in the Spirit. We don't want to know about the works of the flesh right now. We, we just want to walk in the Spirit. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. That's exactly what he's talking about in Romans. It's, we don't do the things that we want to do because we're not walking in the Spirit. And then you jump down to verse 22, and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And it would be better to actually have a period there. It's better translated. The fruit of the Spirit is love, period. And it is exhibited by or exemplified by joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And so what he's saying here is these, these are the rules. These are the expectations. This is the benchmark. This is what has been set. This is the mark that we are called to meet. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's exhibited by all of these things we need to be all of these things. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. That's what it means to not fall short, to not sin, because this is the standard that has been set for us. Now, there is no doubt that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of what is right and good and expected of us as God's creation. Going beyond that, we've certainly not lived up completely to the standard that God has set for us to live up to, which is his son, Jesus. There's not a single one of us that, that can say, I do everything the way Jesus does. But the good news is that God knows that we have a penchant for sinning, for falling short. And that is precisely why he sent his son. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. John 3, 16 through 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, that the world would be saved from death, that we would have everlasting life. And why is it so important? And why did he choose to say it just like that? Because if you go to Romans chapter 6, verses 22 through 23, it says, But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For what? For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of falling short of the perfection of the mark that has been set by God, the wages, the cost of that, the punishment for that is death. And that is why it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, but have everlasting life. But have everlasting life because the wages of this failure 
is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've been set free from the need to fall short and the need to fail morally. That, that is an a important thing to remember and be reminded of every time that we are tempted. Because we have been set free from the bondage of sin and death. What that literally means is that we have been given everything necessary to not fail and to not fall short ever. To not fall short ever from meeting the mark of what would Jesus do? Of walking in the Spirit. I mean, that is a, a deeply convicting thought when you really get down to it. Because now we're not talking about just the crooked behavior. We're not just talking about violating trust in relationships. But now we're talking about falling short of perfection. I mean, that, that was a mind-blowing thing for me. That the Bible is actually telling you and I that as children of God, that we have the ability to be perfect. So what does that naturally mean? Logically, that means that every time that we are not perfect, it was our own fault. And it was our own doing. It wasn't the devil made me do it. It was our own failure. It was our own failure. There's nobody to point to except ourselves because we have been given everything necessary. Everything necessary, not just to avoid falling into the temptations of sin or, or of transgression and iniquity, but also of sin. That we have been given everything necessary to never fall short of the mark. And God's desire is holiness, is perfection, is righteousness. And he's given us the opportunity to live up to that standard and the righteousness that he set for us and exemplified in Jesus. But now it's up to us to follow the instructions that God has left for us, and that is the word of God, and to follow the leading of his Holy Spirit. And when we're successful in this, this, these things, we're going to hit the mark every time. You will not sin, I guarantee you. When I am faithful to do those things, when I follow the word of God, when I do what is in the word of God, and I listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit, I have never sinned. I've never once fallen short when I've done those two things. And yet I continue to sin. I continue to fall short. And why is that? Because in that moment, I'm either failing to follow the word of God or I'm failing to listen to the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes both. And it's the same for every one of you here. Every time we fail in that, it's because we took our eyes off of doing what was right the expectation that has been set for us. And every time that we choose not to follow God's leading, we fall short and we sin. And that's why, as we close here tonight, John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. These things I write to you, everything that, that I've shared with you tonight, these things I share with you because God has shared them with all of us that we may not sin, that we may not fall short ever. And, not but, he says and, okay? And that's, that's an important distinction because but means it could happen. And means and when it does. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, the payment, the recompense for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That Jesus Christ is the one that covers every single failure that we have ever had, every single failure that we will have, and every single failure in the world 
if we will only allow him to. So the challenge, the, the exhortation, the expectation is perfection. But when we fail, when we fall short of that perfection, we have this advocate. We have this, this lawyer, in essence, who is going to come before on our behalf. And he's going to plead with the Father that he would be able to take upon himself our failures, our shortcomings, our sins. And then allow us to, to be recreated with a clean heart, to have a steadfast spirit renewed within us that we would be immovable and that we would be constantly abounding in the work of the Lord. Amen.